Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Chris Stockage. Chris is the CEO of Rustic Pathways, the global leader in community service and education-based travel for students. He's also co-founder of Thinking Beyond Borders, a gap year experience taking students around the world to study global developmental issues. We're also really proud that Chris is on the faculty of our Small Giants Leadership Academy. Welcome, Chris. It'd be great to be here today, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you today, and uh, I've learned a little bit about you and your organization, but uh, I I happen to have a a senior in high school, so uh, these kinds of experiences that you arrange for uh, are really close to the things that we think about in trying to raise good, well-rounded students uh, and children. So uh, tell us a little bit about Rustic Pathways, uh, how you got started in the business, and what you guys do. Sure. So Rustic Pathways is a 35-year-old student travel organization, and we specialize in taking high school students to remote villages in developing countries to do community impact work. And so a group of students either from the same high school or from any high school from the 41 countries where we get students would come together and, as an example, travel to a remote village in Cambodia to build a school. And so... um, you know, they're very life-changing, enriching, transformational experiences for students. And, you know, they also deliver very high quality impact into the communities where we operate. And how would we find out about an organization like yours? Sure. Um, You know, I think about 65% of the people that enroll do hear from word of mouth from other students that have traveled with us or from parents who've seen the positive impact of, of their sons and daughters coming home from our programs. We're pretty widely known in the, U, in the United States throughout um, the private school network, the boarding school network, and, and certainly a lot of public schools um, or associations like the National Association of Independent Schools. Also, a lot of people find us on, on Google or, uh, you know, these days on Instagram. There's quite a few, mm. um, thousands of amazing photos of the students on these programs. Is this paid for by the families, the parents themselves, or are they sponsored? How does that, how do the economics work? It happens a couple different ways. The far majority of students that join our programs are coming in a way where their parents are are paying for the program. We work with a lot of uh, private schools internationally, and with a lot of those schools, as part of the private school tuition, the entire school heads off campus uh, for one week every single year. And so there are students that are in an academic situation where the school pays for it. And then there's a lot of students that that raise money um, for a year or two years to join a program. Um, There's also foundations out there that raise money on behalf of underserved populations of students, and and they'll send students on our programs. So it comes in in a variety of ways, but most often it's, it's the families paying for the program. So how did the company get started? Were you involved at that time? 
I was not involved at that. I would have been five years old. I guess, no, I'm sorry. I, 1983, I would have been 10 years old um, <laughs> when the company got started. And it was founded as um, actually a, a travel company in Australia that specifically took students across the um, outback of Australia for eight weeks at a time. And so it was more of an outdoor adventure company. Um, it operated only in Australia for, I want to say, the first 15 years. And then we opened up programs in the Fiji Islands and started working more in communities in the Fiji Islands. I joined the organization in 2001. Um, and that was the time where we really focused in on our opportunity, our, our vision as a company, and what we wanted to get out and do for both students and communities. How did you end up running the organization as you do today? You know, it was a... Uh, you know, a very unplanned path, I would say. I graduated from Harvard University in 2001 with a degree in economics. And my game plan was to go to Wall Street and become an investment banker and move into private equity and, and sort of follow that track. But I decided that before I did that, I wanted an opportunity to work specifically with high school students. I wanted to get out there and travel. And I wanted to spend a year creating some type of positive impact outside of my own direct life. And I found Rustic Pathways online um, through a Google search. They hired me to open Costa Rica. That first summer, we had more students come just to the country of Costa Rica than had ever traveled with an entire company in a, a given year. So the company doubled in size. And it, it took off from there. I, I ran Costa Rica for three or four years. I then um, became the director of business development, and I was hiring other people and teaching them how to open countries and create programs. Um, I then became the, the head of the sales organization and then eventually the chief operating officer and now the chief executive officer. So one fun thing I could say is over the past 17 years, um, I've pretty much played in every single role that we have within the company. Hmm. Are you in an ownership position now as well? Yes, I am. Yeah, I am. So what's the, the, can you share the uh, size of the company in terms of uh, employees? I don't know if you share sales, any of that? Sure. So we, we have about 75 full-time employees here in the United States. Then we have about just over 100 employees that were born and raised and live in the communities where we operate overseas. So throughout 19 different countries. Um, we, last year, we serviced just over 10,000 students traveling with us. So we're one of the one of the larger student travel organizations here in the U.S. We did roughly $35 million in revenue. And I wish I could sort of in an easy way quantify our community impact and our student impact because I would say those are the numbers we're most proud of. But, you know, through these programs and the core of the model of the program, there's just a lot of positive impact that comes back to the students in the communities. Yeah, my uh, my daughter has been on a couple of mission trips and I don't know how you could possibly even put numbers to the impact that that had on her or the families that she served or the relationships that she developed with others that went on these trips. Just incredible. Uh, so you must, must get tremendous pride as your team does and what you guys have contributed uh, and kudos to take this uh, big, big leap in terms of where your career arc was heading to go down this path. Uh, talk about thinking beyond borders. How, how does this gap year program work? 
Yeah, so when there was a four-year period between 2006 and 2010 where I left Rustic Pathways and started a nonprofit with a, another individual, and our our vision and maybe challenge to ourselves was, you know, how do we create, you know, as we look at the field that we work in, what would the most impactful program model for students look like, and. Uh, we we ended up designing a gap year program where we took students around the world for a full year, and they studied international development issues through social, political, and economic perspectives. And as an example, they would live in Ecuador for four weeks studying clean water issues, living in a community with families that don't have access to clean water. Turns out the river that this indigenous community relied on um, was now polluted from an industrial farm upriver. Um, the students on, on the Thinking Beyond Borders program then worked with um, international development organizations on the ground that were digging wells and um, helping fix the local problem of the lack of, of clean water. And then the students would study, you know, if this was working in one village, why, why don't you do it all over the country? Why don't you do it all over the world? And in taking that lens, they would learn a lot about governments and big business and just the, the social structures that are set up around the world. All in all, throughout the program, they, they studied clean water availability in Ecuador, public education in China, the AIDS epidemic and public health in South Africa, sustainable agriculture in remote India, and also a waste management uh, unit in Vietnam. And then they would come back to the U.S. and work with the U.N., the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, a whole host of nonprofits, and as, as they were entering college, as you would imagine, I mean, they just had a succinct, you know, full on shot of, you know, what's going on in our world and all the major players at the table. Wow. Is that program still being offered today? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, the, actually, the organization changed ownership hands a couple times. When I came back to, I would say, my learning lesson there was the program was so long that it ended up being extremely expensive. It was like between thirty and thirty-five thousand dollars per student. Um, we spent a long time trying to make it an actual freshman year of college and, and partner with the college, and we were unsuccessful in doing that. And as I came back to Rustic Pathways in 2010, part of my um, my own personal and career goal was to take the pieces I'd learned through that, specifically the ways in which it had transformed the students, and figure out how do you break that down into smaller pieces that are more digestible yeah. so it's it's accessible by, by people. Yeah, I was thinking about that, that uh, idea because some uh, actually someone was talking to my daughter yesterday she's about to turn 18 talking about how she should take a gap year. And, uh, uh, and, and, and I thought to myself, oh man, I'm not sure. And I'm, you know, my experience was kind of going straight through and keeping that momentum, but I can really see the value in that just from a, regardless of what your organization has done, what do you think about this idea of kids taking a, a year off to, you know, sort of see the world and experience something different? How, how much time do we have for this podcast, Paul? Because I can uh, go on and on about this one. Yeah. Um, I ran for, there was a, during that period of Thinking Beyond Borders, I ran the national circuit of gap year fairs here in the U.S. It was it was sort of the national spokesman for gap year on NPR a couple times. And 
the reality is what we found statistically is that students that take a gap year, whether it's with an organization like Rustic Pathways or Thinking Beyond Borders, or if they do it independently, they basically, like almost across the board, they have a much stronger understanding of who they are, a much much stronger understanding of the things they would want to do when entering college. They had typically gotten some level of stress and anxiety and the feeling of being lost and confused and nervous out of their system. And statistically, they come into college and far outperform their peers. And it is, it's literally because they've, they've been on this education treadmill from six years old to 18 years old. And instead of yet again, another year in the classroom, sitting at desks, reading books and, you know, cranking through tests, they, they step off that and they read books and they, think about the world and they meet people different than themselves that speak different languages and practice different religions. And it puts this whole world in perspective and it challenges a ton of their assumptions. And so I'm a huge, huge, huge advocate of it. Um, I was on a board with the the Dean of Admissions from Middlebury College, um, Bob Claggett, who had done a ton of research um, that I, of the data I was just mentioning. And, um, you know, right now Rustic Pathways is partnered with an organization called Berto Education, which I'm very excited about because they've, for the first time, cracked this code where you can take a gap year. And if you end up attending one of their 35 or 40 partner schools, you get a full year of freshman credits from the the school that you're going to. And so Bucknell, I believe, is a partner of theirs. You know, If you went on a virtual education gap year program and then you went to Bucknell, Bucknell would give you full freshman credits so that sophomore year, junior year, and senior year, you, know, you have three years left and you're done. That's that's really incredible. I, I would say, too, I can't recall my daughter even being exposed that much to gap year opportunities. So there's probably a real uh, need for more, you know, I wouldn't call it promotion or marketing, but just exposure of the, these kind of opportunities going forward, because I, I agree with you. I think it's a, a great thing to do. I was recently talking to a close friend of mine whose son graduated from Penn and uh, just had this incredible education uh, all the way through college and then was applying to these combined PhD MD programs that are all sponsored by the government where the your postgraduate is free and uh, all at the you know Ivies and everything and and uh, didn't get into one of them and uh, so it was the first time in his life that he experienced failure rejection I would say and uh, and so now he's taking a year to do some of the research and real life things that the other students who did get in had already completed. And as much as this was a shock to his system, uh, to me, it's the best thing that ever happened to him because he's going to get some of that. Uh, I mean, still, you know, in a lab or academic, but but real life experience that's going to help him uh, later in life. So. Uh, I think it's tremendous and, you know, uh, and the idea that you could either, like you said, put it into bite-sized pieces that are more digestible and more economical or tie it to uh, the first year of education, you know, keep doing what you're doing. That's, that's great stuff. Um, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've obviously accomplished a lot in these, you know, 17 years as part of Rustic Pathways, but uh, all this came from somewhere to give you the the courage to really follow your passions in life. So let's, let's take you back. I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your parents, you know, influences you might've had in childhood that really shaped you as the potential kind of leader that you are. Sure. I grew up 
in sort of a middle-class neighborhood in just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. My mother taught elementary school in the largest public school district in Ohio. And I would say my big learning lesson from that was the value that she felt as a teacher, you know, the impact that she had on students. And as I grew up, I saw students in junior high and high school and beyond coming back to thank my mom for, you know, fifth grade or second grade when she was their teacher. Um, so I just saw how fulfilling the field of education is, which I, you know, would consider myself working in the, the overlap of education and travel. Uh, my dad um, sold furniture. Um, he he uh, was a furniture rep for a few different companies. And sports was a big part of my life growing up um, as a little kid, you know, sort of playing all sports. And then by the time I got to high school, really narrowing in on, on football and basketball and then in college playing for the Harvard football team. And, um, you know, as I look back, you know, the mix of, again, the value of education as both an educator and a student um, was a strong pull for me. And then also the lessons I learned through sports, I find to be invaluable. Everything from, you know, the consistency of, you know, working out every day and going to practice every day and the value of like the repetition and the reps, you know, the more you do something, the better at, at you get. And there's no cutting corners. You know, even if you're an amazing, talented person, that eventually catches up with you if you don't work hard and work out and do all the other the other things. Sports also taught me, you know, about teams and how, you know, the, the classic saying, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And, you know, part of winning is not just your own performance, but you know, you working to help bring the team together to accomplish a common goal. And then the, the camaraderie around that through wins and through losses. I also experienced some just heartbreaking losses in sports. And then also like massive upsets where I was on teams where there's no way we should have won that game. And, and we did. So uh, sports was a big influence on me and, and the coaches that I played for. Any early, any job, early jobs along the way that uh, formed your leadership potential? Absolutely. Um, for four years in the summers, I delivered furniture for one of the furniture companies that my dad uh, was a salesman for. And I just remember, I mean, talk about hard work being it, you know, showing up at five in the morning to load up trucks and then sort of out on the road all day and delivering furniture and, you know, getting off at five or 6 PM, you know, 12 or 13 hour, very hard physical labor days, typically working six, six days a week. When this is when I was like 14, 15, 16 and 17. And just, you know, by the both again, like the discipline of going through a hard physical grind and then also understanding that, you know, I wanted to take advantage of opportunities at my fingertips um, so that, you know, that wasn't necessarily my lifelong career. You know, I, I knew what hard work really felt like at that point, And I knew that there were other things I wanted to do in the world. So when you made this decision, uh, going up through, uh, Harvard and, and going down that path, and I'm sure seeing a lot of your peers do that same thing, I'm going to work on wall street and I'm going to be an investment banker or just, you know, that that's all just lined up for you. Uh, how did you get the courage to go in a different direction? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the, it, I almost had a, the, the different feeling. It was, I felt like I had done 
all the things you're supposed to do and, and all the things that are expected. I checked off all the boxes to get to that point. And there was the door and I could open it and walk through. And in some ways, I felt that because I had gotten there, there was a the safety net that I could always come back. And so, you know, it, it you know, it allowed me to to take more risks because again, I, I knew what it took to get to that that spot. And I felt like that world wasn't going away. And more anything more than anything, I just feel so fortunate for listening to my gut and that voice in my head, um, that sort of deeper resonating vibration and energy that, that was telling me, look, you know, take some time, go do something else. That's not going to go away. Try to find something that you're going to be more passionate about and you're going to get more value out of. And I, more than anything, it's, I, I appreciate whatever it was inside of me that listened to my deeper self to go out and do it. Yeah. Were your parents supportive during that period of your life? Yeah, they were. Um, they absolutely were. It was almost a funny thing. People, they would, you know, you know, other friends of parents would be like, Oh, you know, what is Chris up to? And they'd be like, Oh, he's, he's a camp counselor. <laughs> um, and that was the funny thing for years. You know, I, I, that's what I was sort of the box I was throwing and I was a camp counselor and, um, they were supportive and, um, I, I greatly appreciate that of them because, you know, a lot of parents have expectations for their children and, and a vision of where they should go and how they should do it. I think they could see inside me and, and when they were around me just how passionate I was and how happy I was doing the work that I was doing. And so for that reason, um, they were supportive and I, I think they understood what is actually important. Can you think, Chris, as you look back of a, an unexpected learning from an unexpected source somewhere along the way? It's mm, a great question. The first thing that pops to mind when I was in high school, um, someone raised money for uh, 15 of us to go to the Dominican Republic to help build a hospital. And it, I, I was one of the people chosen. It was my first time overseas. And we were living in the upstairs of a church with the goal of building this hospital. And when we went the first day to help build the hospital, none of the work was set up. There was no construction workers. The money wasn't there to build it. And we ended up instead um, installing a generator for the house of the person that was running the church that we were, we were staying at. And that we were in a very, very poor part of the Dominican Republic. And um, the, this person also had like, a Range Rover and two cell phones and was a very powerful figure in the community. And, um, you know, we had gone there with this intention of doing something good and it seemed to make sense. And the lesson I came away with was really understanding what abusive power looks like and even corruption and just vis visually seeing how unequitable the situation was between this person running a church and all the people in the church. Um, and in some ways that even gave the person more power in the eyes of the people that were part of the church. And so it was, it was just an eye opening experience around influence and culture and people and, you know, just how groups of humans are. And that certainly wasn't what I signed up for going down there. Yeah. What an incredible experience as a teenager. So today you run a very special company uh, that's grown and continuing to make impact 
uh, one thing that appears to me just having uh, listened to you, uh, learned from you a little bit in the past is that it seems like you've applied that same level of discipline to building a culture at Rustic Pathways that balances not only creating a place where employees are very engaged, but at the same time is very much high performance. How have you built that kind of culture? One thing I remember from playing sports was you want, I, I always liked playing for the coach where if we lost a game, you know, I would be in tears because I didn't want to let the coach down versus the coach that walks around, you know, always blowing their whistle and screaming at people. And at Rustic Pathways, everyone in the organization really rallies around the vision that we have of creating a world where travel is an essential part of every education, creating a world where travel is a model of sustainable development. You know, people have seen the impact that we have on students and the impact we have in communities. And they feel like they're, you know, they're contributing to something that is above and beyond themselves and above and beyond our organization. And so that creates a certain level of commitment and hard work and just dedication to the company that is, you know, it's, it's rare and it's, it's difficult to create. And then beyond that, you know, I, I think we're a humble organization that brings in people from the outside. We're not afraid to look in the mirror. You know, we, we're constantly trying to improve as a company. You know, I don't think there's, there's no finish line in sight for what we're trying to do. It's like, let's get, you know, if we got 1% better every year or 1% better every week, you know, what does that look like as the years compound and compound on them? So I think it all starts with an understanding and commitment to why we do the work we do. And then, you know, a sense of humility and open eyes, open ears, open heart to, to get better every single day. Can you give an example of one of your internal programs that you have implemented that's created, uh, you know, a process around this? Uh, there's obviously the feeling, the vision, the purpose, the connection people have to the impact from a practical standpoint for people that are listening. Can you give an example of a program that you guys have launched that's helped drive that? Yeah, sure. So every single month we have a 90 minute slot for the whole company. Um, where we bring in people from the outside to provide some type of basically 90-minute presentation to the whole organization that is designed to not just improve them professionally and what they do at their job, but also to improve who they are as a person in the world, to be a better husband or wife or a better mother or father or a better brother or sister or better friend. So, you know, these... These monthly development sessions are, are professional, but even more so personal development. And we've surveyed the whole company to um, learn about the topics that they would like to be trained on. And then, you know, we sort of stack rank those and then go out in the field and find experts to teach on the subject matters. And so um, an example of that would be um, Dr. Race, who teaches mindfulness to corporations and a way to bring mindfulness in small bits into your personal life and into your professional life and what that can do for an individual physically, socially, emotionally, and just sort of the way that they're showing up in the world. And, um, 
you know, the, the sessions like that are very, very well received. Another one was a training on interacting with others and just sort of how we all come to a situation with our own, our own experience and our own perspective of the reality that's going on and learning to communicate in a more constructive way can dramatically improve relationships amongst people. And, um, I remember the training that we went through and, um, a staff member coming like, um, coming to me like a month after saying how much that really possibly impacted her relationship with her husband. So uh, that would be an example of one, one program that we've implemented that have been very well received by staff. Yeah. I mean, especially that you're combining the professional and the personal. So you're looking at the holistic view of your team members and, uh, stopping that that once a month in a disciplined way every month bringing in somebody from the outside who can teach and share uh something with them so uh i i would imagine that people are so grateful to be able to participate in something like that um as you think about the company today and the path you're on chris uh what would you say is maybe your biggest challenge right now as a company one of the biggest challenges is that this the field that we work in sir so Again, the overlapping of high school travel and education and specifically the community impact or the community service model, it became really popular as we were um, growing in the, you know, sort of 2005 to 2015 time period. A lot of organizations entered the field and it was easy. It's easy for people to say, you know, just say they do what other companies do. And so, you know, one of our, one of our challenges is there with the flood of companies in our field, just, you know, competing on price instead of having the ability to compete on the quality of program, the quality of design, the quality of content, the quality of training that goes into a program leader that has a lot of impact on, on your child for decades to come. Um, you know, the real safety vetting in the background and, what that looks like, vetting vendors and vetting hotels and vetting, you know, um, you know, we basically run critical incident, non, non-announced critical incident scenarios throughout the year where I'll get a Skype or a phone call and suddenly we're running a scenario where um, a bus crashed in Peru and there's, you know, three kids critically injured and one being life flighted and we have to go through a whole scenario. You know, there's a lot of people in the field that just sort of say they do it and they don't. And instead, they just compete on price and run cheaper programs. Yeah, I, I was going to say that I remember in my company, too, no matter what we do at some point, it, it, it becomes commoditized or has the potential to be commoditized. And when you look at how incredible uh, it is in terms of the service that you provide, the impact you make, uh, there's there's always going to be companies that at least say that they are doing the same thing as good or better than you, and they're going to do it for cheaper. So it's, uh, it's sometimes tempting to try to play that game when the reality is if you sell who you are and not what you do, uh, you're generally going to win. And, and I think that's a discipline too, that I assume you are sticking to, uh, to be able to articulate what is so special about the company, uh, not the features and benefits of what the, the actual travel program is. Right. That's right. That's right. I really like the way you said that. Sell who you are, not what you do. I think that's a really important idea when you become the leader in a field um, and to maintain that discipline, understanding how you got there and, and really doubling down on that. 
you know, you've uh, you've grown obviously as a leader, starting out working in the company, having a, almost every opportunity to try different positions, and ending up now running the company. Uh, I gotta believe uh, your curiosity is never ending, and you're still learning. So, can you talk about what parts of leadership you think you still need to improve on? Sure. Yeah, and I, I mean, you just took the words out of my mouth. You know, I think there's you know there's a lifetime of things to still learn. Um, multiple lifetimes. And again, I don't, in my life, I don't view anything as like, there's like this end point, you know, it's, it's a lot about the process and the journey. The things that are, are probably next on my radar to overcome. One is I'm, I'm a very empathetic person and, and sort of human based person. And so, you know, delivering the bad news or, you know, not helping people get what they want or, or, um, you know, achieve the thing that they're shooting for, you know, is it hurts them. It sort of hurts me. And I am someone that can overcommit and then have an inability to, um, follow through on every single thing that I've committed to. And so, you know, it comes from a place of, um, wanting to do a lot, wanting to help a ton of people, but then at the end of the day, you know, falling short on, on some execution, and especially now that I have, I have three little kids, a seven-year-old, a six-year-old and a four-year-old, you know, I'm really trying to draw some hard lines in the sand around what exactly do I want to use my time on? Because that is the most valuable asset and resource in the world for anyone. And so, you know, a lot of it around learning to say no more often rather than just over committing to lots of stuff. Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, we're all always working on that. I'm a little further along in my career than you. And, you know, now if I'm doing anything, it's just trying to be a good dad. You know, my kids are teenagers, but uh, I know you've recently moved your family to a place where they could uh, spend more time together and in nature. And, you know, you're really just focused on what's important uh, for them to raise wonderful kids, which will ultimately be uh, your legacy. Uh if you were talking to somebody that is starting out, whether they're in school or they're new in their business, what kind of advice would you give them? I would say to focus on the, the, the person exiting school. Um, you know, th this is something I, I believe deeply in. It's, you know, you, people hear this, it's sort of a saying, but to really go after something you're passionate about, just to take that first step in that, that one direction. And it could be as simple as, you know, I, I love coffee and passionate about coffee. Well, just start, start walking in that direction. You know, the whole world of the coffee industry from coffee shops to roasting coffee and growing coffee and making candy bars made out of coffee. Um, what I have found in my own life is taking that first step in a direction that I was, was passionate about, which was both travel and education. I ended up for the last 17 years being the type of person where I, every day I wake up and it's a work day, I'm, I'm fired up. I'm excited. Like I, I can't wait to jump into things. And then the weekends are even more fun. Mm -hmm. And so, um, oh gosh, that's, it's just like an invaluable aspect of the life experience. If you're waking up doing something every day, you're excited to do and you're, you're, you want to learn more about, and you want to do it in, in bigger and better ways. So following passion is one. The second thing, which I sort of mentioned through my sports experience is there are very, you know, a few people win the lottery, but there's not much cutting corners that, that really work in the long run. And, you know, there's a lot of mix of hard work and consistency and getting in the repetition 
repetitions and doing it every day, you know, that's the stuff that, that compounds over a lifetime. I heard someone talking about reading as a great example of something, you know, reading and investments, the idea of compounding, like, it, you know, if you read for one hour every single day over the course of 30 years, that really compound, compounds on itself versus, you know, zinging out one book while you're on vacation, the one month. And so those would be the, the two suggestions. You know, really going in a direction that you're passionate about and being ready to put in the hard, consistent work. Yeah, great, great lessons. Uh, it, it doesn't come easy. And uh, I get the opportunity, as I'm sure you do, to speak to a lot of uh, young people uh, who are trying to figure out what they want to do and feel the pressure like you probably felt early on in life. And, and yet, especially when you're young, that's the best opportunity to take a bit of a risk and realize that uh, you may not even know what your passion is. I tell people that I don't think I you know, even discovered it for many years after I was in the workforce and uh, that it was okay to just sort of let life come to you. And if you have good values and you're putting in those reps to do the best you can at whatever it is you're doing, the right answer will come over time. And it's a lot easier said than done. It's, uh, you know, the pressure people feel uh, is there and evident. But uh, I think just uh, tremendous advice that you're giving, which comes from you making these tough choices on your own and look at what it has done for you, your family, your employees, and the communities around the world that you're impacting. I really congratulate you on that. Uh, Chris, I want to end with these five quick hit questions. Uh, just like the association game, just name the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, uh, name a leader that you look up to. Uh, Barack Obama. He, uh, amazing leader, amazing leader for our country. And I can only imagine the tough decisions you make when you're in that seat on the bus. Yeah, uh, I can't argue with that. Uh, how about a great book that influenced your leadership style? I don't have a great quote unquote leadership book, but I think a lot of like what I've learned in life have come from books like The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman or Siddhartha by Herman Hesse or The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, which are just around these like life journey stories, you know, mm -hmm. follow the omens, you know, go on the journey. Don't do, don't just do what people are telling you you think you should do. Okay. How about your favorite all time movie? I am a fan of some of the classic sort of mafia movies, Goodfellas, uh, Casino. You know, I, I remember watching those as a teenager, and uh, they're still fun today. Yep, uh, a man after my own heart. And there's a the new one coming out, The Irishman, pretty soon. So I'm looking forward to that one uh, with De, De Niro and Pacino. Uh, do you have a uh, favorite TV series that you like to binge watch? Yeah, yeah. In the past, um, when The Wire was out, I really enjoyed that. Um, I like the Netflix series Black Mirror. It's sort of like just into the future. Um, I'm binge watching a show right now called Succession on HBO. Oh, is that good? I've heard about that. Oh, it's great. It's a really good show. Okay. Yeah. I got I to check that one out. Yeah, The Wire is my favorite all-time uh, TV series. It's just incredible. And then lastly, Chris, what's something about you that many people don't know? Um, I, I think those may be close to me, no, but the, the mornings are – my precious time. I get up around 4.30 every morning for very selfish reasons. I It's my quiet time to read and drink coffee and I do a 10-minute meditation. And the man, the mornings that I do that, I am so awake and prepared and ready for the world as my kids and wife wake up and I jump into work. 
and the days that I don't, I feel like I cheated myself. And so, yeah, just like the, the preciousness of the morning routine. Again, some people know that about me, but, but I wouldn't say it's very widely spread. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's great. I, I'm a morning person too, although it's been harder to get up that early. I'm not a 4.30 guy, <laughs> but I could do 5.30. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that same. It's yep. just, it's, <laughs> you know what I love? The silence. I just love the silence of that hour or so, you know, no matter what I'm doing. Um, well, this has just been great uh, to learn more about you, Chris, and and follow you on your journey. I want to reflect on a few of the things I heard that I learned from you today. One, and one of the biggest lessons is that, that it's okay to take a different path from that that's been laid out in front of you and to take a risk. You took that year off um, and that changed your whole career. You just found this company, Rustic Pathways on Google. You rose up the ladder and here you are leading the company, uh, making a difference both in the for-profit world and the non-for-profit sector. Um, that uh, this idea of gap years, you know, just kind of evangelizing for the importance of gap years. I, I love that. I think more people need to hear about that and the opportunities that are available to them. Uh, we all are a reflection of, reflection of how we grew up. So what you learned for your mom, that she could be a teacher. My mom was a teacher too. And just the impact that she had by uh, learning how other students told you what an impact your mom had. So just being a teacher, which sometimes we look at as, you know, maybe not the, it's an underpaid or maybe not the most important profession. Look at that. You know, it's okay that you can be a teacher and and have a very fulfilling life. Um, Your dad being a furniture salesperson, it's so funny how much we have in common. My grandfather worked in a furniture store for many, many years and and my dad did the same thing, delivered. um, And that gave you the uh, that whole idea of, of hard work, what you learned from sports along the way, that there's no cutting corners. It's you got to do the reps, um, uh, the impact of wins versus losses. So many lessons learned for you. And that uh, even though that you had checked all the boxes growing up in terms of a career that was maybe there in front of you, not that it would have been easy, but that it was an opportunity, you also knew that that was a safety net, that you could uh, you could go back to that if you needed to. Uh, when I started my business, I had a legal career, but I only did it for a year and a half. At the time, I realized, you know what, I guess I could always go back to this if our business failed. As the years went by, I realized I would never go back to it. But uh, but but that safety idea that probably provided a little, uh, little comfort um, at that time. Um, just listening to your gut, um, the voice in your head that at that moment in life and just say, look, I want to do something that I'm passionate about. I would at least want to try and find that. Um, listening to what Rustic Pathways is like today just sounds like an incredible organization to be a part of, to work for. And as we've talked about so often in the Small Giants community, it's really no more than having a defined vision and purpose that people can connect to. And the the vision around the impact that you have by creating these experiences for students around the world is something that everybody can feel that they contribute to. And yet, developing these unique and special cultures does take discipline does take process does take repetition so this idea that you bring somebody in from the outside every month to do a 90-day training session and you've kept that up and show people how committed you are to their learning is something really important and what you share for young people to again you know go after your passion take the first step realize that there's especially at that age the risk is actually smaller than it is when you're 
older and have a mortgage and have kids and, and all of that. So when you're young and you're feeling something, it's okay to follow it and, and see where that leads you. And ultimately, uh, we all have to put in the time. We all have to put in the reps. And there's those very few people that uh, uh, make it to pro sports or win the lottery, like you said, or whatever. And, and even they got there by doing the reps. And so I think it's so it's such a simple but important message. So uh, thank you so much for sharing today, Chris. I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Paul, oh, thanks for having me. Um, it was a great conversation, and uh, hopefully some of this stuff passes on. Um, I really appreciate the time. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to hear future episodes. Until next time.